Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Rich Friends. This week, we switch gears and enter into the financial world. I'm speaking to a financial planner and recent entrepreneur, Caitlin Carlson. Caitlin and I met through the Female Founder Collective, and she speaks about the psychology aspect behind money and how she got rid of her student debt, and lastly, the importance of financial planning. So I know you guys will get a lot from this one, so please enjoy. I'm excited to kind of get started with you. I would love to start out the podcast and show just by asking you a little bit more kind of about yourself and how you started in the finance world. Yeah, absolutely. So I got my start in finance on the asset management side of the business, which is typically what people know as like mutual funds. So I started my career with Putnam Investments, initially as an investment analyst, I'm studying international companies, and then quickly learned that... I'd prefer to be more people-facing than stuck in a cubicle. So I shifted over into the distribution side of Putnam. um, And that's where I learned what financial advisors did. And I was very intrigued by that because I felt I was a psychology major in college. And so I felt like it was a great marriage between my interests where I got to work with people and families. But it was the integration of that with money, which is such a personal and important thing to people and finances. I actually ended up meeting my now husband at Putnam. And uh, so he had a job opportunity to move down to New Orleans. Uh, So when we moved down to New Orleans, that's when I decided to make the jump from asset management to wealth management. Um, And I started a financial planning career down there. Uh, covered four states by myself. So Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, and Arkansas. And I did financial plans for the clients of financial advisors. And I really loved that. Um, I got a very wide range of experience. I worked with people that had worked on oil rigs and saved for retirement their whole lives to um, multi-multi-millionaires, in a couple cases, even billionaires. So it was a very wide range of experience. Um, and that's when I got my CFP as well, my Certified Financial Planner designation, and then became an advisor myself in 2017. So, Well, congratulations. That's amazing. <laughs> why do you think it is, though? It's funny that you bring up psychology because why do you think it is that there is such like you know, a stigma around money and talking about money, especially when it comes, I think, for women too. It seems to be something that's really difficult to discuss in like open conversation. Whereas if you talk about something more so like, you know, diet and exercise for, per se, like that's just as much like health, wellness, finance seems to kind of slip through those cracks. Yeah, that's a really great question. I think, and this is where I think that the finance industry falls down, is it creates this intimidation factor where it makes investing seem very unapproachable. And money is so personal and people's preferences on what they spend money on is so personal. Um, And I think people feel a little bit of a judgment factor there. So that's actually a really interesting position that I hold as an, an advisor is, you know, I always set the tone by saying like, this is your life. And I don't even call it a budget. I call it an intentional spending plan because, you know, if you're, if vacations bring you joy, then that's where you're going to spend your money. If cars bring you joy, then, you know, you just need to be familiar with whatever the consequences of spending money on those things are. 
Um, but I think particularly for women, it's just, it's been such a male dominated field for so long. And that unapproachable factor, I think discourages people and almost creates this aura of, I don't know enough to say anything. So I'm not going to say anything at all. Um, and that's where I really like to break down the barriers because it's really not all that complicated, but just to be able to speak freely and learn and get educated, you know, it's, you're either going to have to do it yourself or, or work with an advisor because it is a weird thing. Even families within themselves don't talk about money. So it's just this odd taboo that I'm not exactly sure what the right answer is, but you know, I think things like this, like podcasts, being just very open about not everyone has all the answers. People are going to have their own preferences and you just need to get familiar with, with what those are for you, where your values lie. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was really interesting how you just mentioned like people can spend their money on different things, but it's about the consequence of what it means to spend your money on something. I've never thought of it like that, but let's say you spend your money on a car and okay, well, what's your insurance? Like, what's the liability of that car? Let's say you spend money on shoes and like you, you ruin them or whatever it is, or they go out of style, whatever that looks like. I never thought before about like something that you purchase to have an actual like okay, what's the like downside to that purchase? You know what I mean? That's a really, really good way of thinking about it. And I think that's something that people often overlook when like making a buying decision. Um, as you kind of like just turning it around here, as you've progressed into your career, um, where have you seen the like purchasing shifts go for your clients? Absolutely. There is a generational shift from things to experiences. I find that our peer group, and by our peer group, I mean millennials and Gen Z, far more prefer to spend their money on Airbnb or vacations or even local experiences versus having a lot of things. Um, you know, I've worked with, when I was in Louisiana, I worked with a lot of people that, that were older in their 50s, 60s, 70s that just have so much stuff. And <laughs> you just, you know, in some cases, it's been helping people sift through their estates. And you're just like, why is there all this stuff? It just doesn't seem necessary. Um, and, and I think that's probably hands down the biggest trend shift that I've seen. Yeah, sure. that's really. And also, I, my husband and I actually describe ourselves as like minimalists. We like don't want clutter. We don't want. We want to have a very clean and zen space. And you know, you look at the WeWorks of the world or the Sweet Greens, and it's kind of got that same vibe. It's it's got that like industrial, clean, save the planet. That stuff has also been really important. So I'd say that's a big shift as well. That's awesome. Yeah. How do you, how do you dictate culture even like within your own company? Is it just you right now that's like kind of running the show or do you have a staff? Like how do you currently run your business? Yeah. So, um, I became an advisor in 2017 and, and we moved back to Boston in 2018. I'm originally from this area. My husband's from Texas and I was fortunate that he was flexible to live anywhere. So I moved back here and I stayed within UBS, but then I left because I, I felt like the model that I'm currently in, which is the RIA model, Registered Investment Advisor, is where the industry is going and is ultimately in the best interest of the client, which is that you are completely objective. 
you know, there are no banking incentives. There's no conflicts of interest. I truly am a fiduciary to my clients and represent the best interests of my clients. And I started my own company just about six months ago. So it's me. I work with a handful of clients that I absolutely love. Can you go back a little bit and just talk more about the R? I don't know what that model is. And like maybe explain for like those of us like myself who don't really know, like describe like that model and how it's different and, and, and what like people can get from that model. Yeah, absolutely. So there are really, when it comes to the financial advising industry, there are three channels. So there's one called the wirehouses, which is a really antiquated name, but essentially that refers to the big banks. So UBS, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch. Um, So those are big companies. They employ financial advisors. Financial advisors split their management fees with the banks. The banks provide them with support, such as research and assistant, but also what happens is that those advisors are beholden to selling those products. So for example, at UBS, you know, you can only get UBS lending. You can't go out and shop for a better mortgage. And that lending to me, I saw that as a conflict of interest. I mean, I guess there are advisors that say, you know, don't take ours, go somewhere else. But but those advisors are still getting paid on those loans. And I felt like it very much clouded um, the ability to be objective for a client when you're getting paid on the assets that you manage and you're getting paid on the loans that they have. It just makes it seem like there's not much of a difference to you. You know, that money's still going in your pocket. Um, So that was something that as a financial planner kind of bothered me about the wirehouses. Um, Then you have the next one is it kind of, graduates from that's probably like the strictest and biggest to the most liberal where you could be totally on your own. So the next iteration of that is called the independence. So that would be like Raymond James, LPL. They say, you know, we're, we're not going to take as much of your management fee, but we'll provide you with some structure. We'll provide you with maybe an assistant or a research platform. Um, And so the incentive to the advisor there is, okay, they're not going to take as much of my paycheck and I have a little bit more freedom. Yet at the same time, you're still beholden to whatever it is that Raymond James and LPL are putting out. Then in the final bucket is RAA, which is Registered Investment Advisor. As a Registered Investment Advisor, you can be completely your own company. You decide where the money is held. You decide what research you want to pay for, what planning software you want to pay for. Like You are just running your own company. Um, and you have the ability to truly guide your clients to the best lending capabilities, the best investment solutions. You know, it's, you can design the company whichever way you'd like. So it's kind of this like, you know, big, fancy UBS in downtown New York all the way to I'm working out of my nursery currently. I'm <laughs> working from home right now. So it's actually, you're all on an even playing field there. But um, the, the biggest thing though, that's made this so, um, so transformational for our industry is technology. Mm-hmm. The accessibility to solutions. I have just as much accessibility to solutions now as UBS did 10 years ago. Um, that's really been technology has very much disrupted our industry, but I think it in it goes towards the benefit of the client, which is awesome. 
So why would clients feel incentivized then to go with somebody like a UBS or something like that? Is there a lack of knowledge you think? Is it just like, you know, my parents went with them, so I'm going to go with them. It's all we know. Like, I just, I'm trying to understand like what the, the knowledge or the, or the thinking would be to go with someone like that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's a lack of education out there for the consumer um, that, you know, it's, this is the way that it's always been. And these are the people that we know for investing. So therefore we're going to go there. Um, you know, there are some things, for example, like sometimes a UBS can use lending capabilities to their advantage. If someone is looking for money, you know, that could be strategic and and it's not to say that they're, they're bad. I mean, they're trying to help the client. Um, but I still think there's a lot of education that needs to be done to let people know that these options are out there um, and there is competitive pricing. So, you know, you could potentially go with an RIA and pay a lower fee than you would be paying with, with a Morgan Stanley or something like that. Yeah. And, and when you say financial planning, you mean like helping to get somebody a mortgage, you mean ma- maybe managing their current debt, like it's stuff like that. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, that's another huge shift that has happened in our industry. So, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, it was very much the brokerage model. So I don't know if you've seen The Wolf of Wall Street, um, but that was a (laughs) (laughs) exaggerated, but fairly fair um, depiction of what the industry used to be like. It was very transactional. It was buy the stock, sell the stock. You know, it was, there wasn't a holistic feel to guiding people through their financial lives over the last 15 years. And it's still evolving, but over the last 15 years, it's gone much more towards a holistic, let's look at your entire balance sheet, your cash flow, like, everything going on in your life um, and actually make some strategic decisions here. I'm not just going to sell you a product. I'm going to help you again, going back to the consequences, figure out, you know, like if you make this decision, what are the consequences of that? And it's, it kind of blew my mind that it's like so new because I thought that was the way that it always was. Um, But, you know, even planning softwares have only come out in the last five to 10 years. So the, and so the older generation of advisors, you know, some of them kind of jumped in early and were the pioneers getting their CFPs, but by and large, a lot of the older advisors tend to have that traditional feel where they're picking stocks for their clients. They're not really doing it in a holistic fashion. The younger generation of advisors is much more holistically based. So it's, let's look at the overall picture and figure out, like you said, you know, how to get you the most competitive mortgage, how to help you save for retirement, how to help you educate your kids with 529 plans. And, and that's what I do for my clients. We're always looking at the full picture uh, and deciding where to allocate every dollar. So it's really important to make sure if you're interviewing financial advisors, that financial planning is a part of what they do. I mean, because Otherwise, it's really not worth paying them for. You can just stick your money in an index fund. Yeah, and I think that, well, I would always just think that all everybody would ha- have a background in financial planning. That seems like it would be obvious, but you're saying that it's not. 
Absolutely not. So that's another great point. It's very important to look for someone who has a CFP designation, which is certified financial planning designation. That means that they've gone through the curriculum and it's, it typically takes about a year to get. That means that they're familiar with tax planning strategies, trust and estate planning strategies, investments, insurance. They've gone through the rigorous curriculum of learning all of these facets of financial planning. And then on the other end of that, what do you look for when almost taking on clients? Because I think in your business with your specific skill set, it goes both ways. Like you don't want to be working with clients that maybe aren't listening to you and you don't want to be working with clients that, you know, you can't align with as well. So what, what are some of the things that you ask and that you look for when taking on new clients? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so the first thing that I look for is I want to make sure that they're they're good delegators and they're committed to this route. I mean, if someone is already questioning me like on nickel and diming fees, I'm getting that it's a mismatch because I'm getting that they're not finding value in my services and that's okay. You know, not everyone feels that they need or want to have a financial advisor, but that just means that I'm not helping someone else who would really benefit from the conversations of, you know, what to invest in or where to put their money because there are plenty of people that are willing to pay for those services. And the other thing is as the industry evolves, it's having a niche is also very important. And so what I learned through my experience at UBS was I felt business owners were being severely underserved. I felt like as a financial advisor, you would just look at their personal balance sheet and then they'd have their business, which is this big asset on their balance sheet. And you don't really know anything about it. You just wait for the liquidity event or wait for them to retire. I saw so many business owners burned by not having the right guidance at the right time. So I'm actually shifting my practice to focus pretty much exclusively on business owners. That's really good to know. I think something that's really interesting about you is that you kind of have this like holistic mindset around it, which seems to be very not common in the financial world, as well as you take the time to really clearly explain things, which I appreciate because there's a lot of, um, you know, financial jargon around what's going on and it makes it very confusing for the everyday person to understand. Like I even find myself as a business owner, like I get lost in some of this stuff where I feel like I need to be really strong in it, which is the whole point of having this is like, can we just take away this curtain and can we make things just a little bit easier for people to understand? You know, that's just kind of my general thought on it. Yes, that is. And um, like, <laughs> raise the roof. That is my <laughs> mission <laughs> because I just, I've seen it all, you know, I mean, I've always, I've almost been in the industry for a decade. I have, you know, worked at the largest wealth management firm in the world with some of the richest people in the world. I have worked with just very simple, good old boys in the oil rig. And it's, I just find that it's not necessary to overcomplicate it. And it's such a disservice to people. And the simpler and more approachable you can make things, you know, the better off everyone's going to be. You're going to be more confident in your decisions. Um, and you're going to realize like, it's really not, it's, it's not that complicated, but you know what? People got paid for it to be complex. And that's why there's been a lot of inertia for change in our industry, which is really sad. And that's why I'm trying to change it, you know? So I think talking about it, um, creating transparency and 
not really having this bravado around it. You know, I mean, anyone can figure it out. It's just, do you want to spend the time studying for your CFP for a year? Not everyone wants to do that. But I'm really glad to hear you say that. I'm glad that I am coming across making it simple. Yeah. And and I think it's not even just about you making it simple, but I think it's more so just about you, you know, taking the time to actually like explain it um, has been really, really helpful in understanding it. Um, for somebody who's kind of just like new to understanding their finances in general, is there a specific amount of money you recommend people put into investments right away? Like, let's say I only do have the $10. Am I putting two into an investment? Like, what are your, do you have sort of like more of like a holistic mindset around how that works? Yeah. So, <clears throat> excuse me, the frustrating answer would be, it depends. Okay. Um, so which is why having an advisor is good, right? Yes. Um, and why I'll use myself as an example. So this is why this is the power of a financial advisor, because on paper, things might make sense, but your emotions need to be equally taken into consideration. So I came out of school with close to $200,000 in student debt. And oh. that was at an 8% interest rate, which is ridiculous because my mortgage is three. <laughs> so, you know, figuring out, but I also knew that I needed to start saving for retirement at 22. And fortunately I started at Putnam Investments, which they were great educators about the importance of a 401k and the importance of starting early because nothing can replace that time factor. And yeah. you know, having my twenties to have that those savings compound, I, I was able to earn a lot of money. So <clears throat> for myself, even though I had my student loans to pay, I made sure at the very minimum, I was, I was contributing to the match that Putnam was giving me. I think that is an absolute must, no matter what your situation is. Because like I said before, that's just free money that's coming to you. And it's almost like you need to know the rules of the game and you need to know what pieces you have or what puzzle pieces you have. And that's where the finesse of an advisor can come in, you know, figuring out. So for me, okay, I have this ridiculously heavy debt, but I know I need to save for retirement, but I also need to eat dinner tonight. You know, where is the, the art of balancing all that? Um, so you have to do what you can, where you can. So I looked at my paycheck and what was coming in every month. And I figured out, okay, so the debt obviously needs to get paid. Also, I need to save enough to the match. So those are two really important priorities, which might not satisfy me today. Like I might not be able to get that third margarita that I probably don't need, but <laughs> let's look at the responsible things first. And then let's see what's left over for my income. And I had to live at home for 18 months, you know, before I could live in the city. So there's the sacrifice. You know, I went to a great college. I have to pay student loans. The consequence of that is I'm not going to live in the nicest Manhattan apartment or the nicest apartment in Boston. Um, so it's just, what are your puzzle pieces? What are the rules of the game? And then making strategic decisions around that. Because my student loan debt interest rate was so high. That was something that I wanted to wipe out immediately or as fast as I could. 
Um, so interestingly, I, as soon as the COVID legislation came out on retirement accounts, I actually seriously looked at using my retirement savings to pay off my student loans. And on paper, that's like liquidating your retirement accounts before 59 and a half is like a cardinal sin. But to me, emotionally, living with $200,000 and paying 8% interest on that, I felt like I was treading water. It was so heavy. So I decided to do that. I decided to liquidate my retirement accounts. The COVID provisions allowed me to do so without paying the 10% penalty. I will have to pay taxes, but I can sleep so much better at night because my loans are paid off. Yeah. And that was because I was able to accumulate a lot of money over my 20s because I started at 22. Yeah. And now I'm sure you starting this business and not having that student debt hanging over your head has probably made you a much more confident business owner. You probably feel much better about just like not having that stress eating at you. And I think that that, you know, is a big change. And like you were mentioning before we started recording that you're pregnant too. So congratulations again. (laughs) You're going to have a child and you're not having to, to have that. So those are two like really important things holistically again, to really keep into account. So I think that I, like you said, there is like a psychology aspect to money and it's definitely something that isn't really discussed as much. It's like, Oh, you hear the $200,000 in student debt, but you don't hear. Okay. But I also want to start a business. And just because I have this debt doesn't, you know, make me less than anybody else. You know what I mean? It's not because I, I didn't do this and this and this. So debt doesn't equate to like lack of education or whatever it might be. Because I think that sometimes there is even a stigma around debt, which is tough. Yes, absolutely. And I know we'll be on audio, but I'm like ferociously shaking my head. (laughs) Because it's, you know, life is not static. And that's why it's so important to be flexible. And it's so important to have an educated advisor. Because you need to know the rules of the game. And also you need to have an advisor that's committed to educating themselves. As soon as the COVID provisions came out, I read through everything. I figured out every loophole and I used it for myself. And you know, now I know for my clients, you need to know what your chess pieces are and, and move them around the board in a way that allows you to, to sleep at night. So Definitely. Yeah. Well, now, Kaylin, where can people find you and connect with you and potentially, you know, chat about if their business owners maybe get in touch with you that way? I'd love to hear before we close off uh, where people can find you and your business in particular. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, that's one final thing that I'll say is the beauty of being a business owner is you have more retirement options than an employee. So that was another factor that went in. I used to be an employee. Now I'm a business owner. So that was another factor that went into the decision to liquidate my retirement savings is because I know I can make it faster as a business owner. I did not realize that. Yep. So if you are a business owner, it's really important for you to know the options that are available to you because you're taking the risk of being an entrepreneur, but you can also be rewarded in unconventional ways. Hmm. So, um, but yeah, anyway, so where you can find me. So uh, my company is called Theory Planning Partners. Uh, You can find me at theoryplanning.com. Um, and I'd be happy to, I can give my email too. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> right. So my email is Caitlin, K-A-I-T-L-Y-N dot Carlson, C-A-R-L-S-O-N at theoryplanning.com. And also feel free to look me up on LinkedIn. I'm there too. Excellent. Yeah. So any business owners um, looking for any sort of financial planning, please give Caitlin uh, an email, check out her website. 
Um, Caitlin, I really appreciate you being on. I really appreciate you even sharing like personal stories. I, I think that it was really helpful. So thank you so much. Oh, good. Absolutely. I'm so happy to help. And it was really such a pleasure dealing with this. I hope you guys love that episode with Caitlin. I certainly got a lot from it. If you want to know more about the podcast, want to know more about what's going on and who I'm interviewing next, please check out Sick Bird Productions on Instagram, S-I-C-K-B-I-R-D Productions on Instagram. That is where you're going to find all of the latest, what is happening with this podcast, what's happening with my company, um, and everything you're going to need to know there. And also, if you're a creator, we would love to collaborate with you. We have a roster of hundreds of amazing creators on our team, and we're always looking for new, amazing talent. So please reach out through there. Um, We would love to hear from you. I'm so excited to keep interviewing amazing financial advisors and creators. And obviously, as you guys know, we're going to be doing this podcast every single week. So feel free to tune in next time. And I hope you guys again, enjoyed that episode. Bye guys.